This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today, I am joined solo by L to discuss sin and the archaeology of Joshua. Woohoo! So here we go. Ah. Off the rails. Completely. <laughs> Unshackled from the chains of Marty's ways, I guess. <laughs> I suppose. You never know. He might drop in from above if we say yeah. something off <laughs> secretly here. <laughs> Jump in. He'll probably hear this episode with all of the other listeners. Most likely, if we do our job well. Well, let's let's dig into sin then. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a great question. Um, not um, like we talked last time about how translators are doing their best, but sometimes they kind of freely vacillate between synonyms with what seems good to them. It is not ideal, which is why everybody should learn Hebrew. Um, but if you don't have the chance to do that, uh, here are some words for sin that pop up. The most frequent one would be the word chata, um, and that's usually translated sin. Uh, and it, very helpfully for us, perfectly matches the Greek um, word for sin as well. So the picture behind it, we talked about Hebrew being a very image-based language, along with the other Semitic languages. And so the picture behind chata is to miss the mark. Just like you've probably heard in a sermon, they're correct. Um, it's an archery thing. You have not hit it correctly. So the organizing picture I'm going to use to differentiate between these today. So last time we talked about God as king versus God as creator, etc. The organizing picture that I want to utilize is the path, which I trust is um, familiar to Bema listeners. The path being the word derech, right? So um, if we think about chata in the context of walking the path, Chata would be like you've stepped, you've taken a step off, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. I was trying to think of what episode we talked about um, this concept, and I am not sure I can tell you, but we have definitely talked about the idea of the path and knowing the path and walking the path somewhere in the Baymaw corpus. I'm sure. I'm sure it's foundational, or at least back, uh, back when I was a Marty student, it was foundational. So I'm sure it's still in there. Certainly. Okay. The next word we're going to do six today. Um, the next word is usually or often translated iniquity. Um, unless there's chata twice, sometimes we'll just change it to iniquity because they, you know, have their predilections, I suppose. So go ahead on quick on the subject of, um, what words you choose to translate. I've heard about the ESV, that this is one of the advantages of the ESV, is that they use the same English word to translate the same Hebrew word in every case. So if you're doing a word study, but only in English, ESV can be helpful in that it keeps the English words consistent in relation to the Hebrew words. Do you know if that's true? I know that for some words it's not true, um, <laughs> but I, I don't know if this is the case with sin and iniquity specifically. Um, I don't I don't think it is, but I know that it's not true when it comes to words like joy, because there are um, like eight different words for joy in the Hebrew, and we pretty much only switch between rejoice and be glad, and that is it. Um, and so I'm not aware. I know that the ESV doesn't go through and translate all of those different words differently. They just kind of feel, you know 
feel out their vibe for what they'd like to say there and, and run with it. But maybe it's true for sin and iniquity. I don't know. Yeah, well, I'm wondering maybe in the case of, you know, if there's eight words for joy, but only two English words used, uh, like you're not going to have rejoice used for or, or rather you're going to whatever the Hebrew word is, it's always going to have the same English word associated with it, even if there are like four words associated with the English Hmm. So yeah, I guess this this just makes your case even stronger. Like we got to learn our Hebrew. That's right. And if you go to my website, you can sign up for classes. Bum, 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 bum. Perfect. Well, I will link your website in the show notes. Lovely. Okay. Um, we were talking about iniquity. Um, so the word for uh, that is usually translated iniquity is ava, um, and it's technical image behind ava is twisted crooked or distorted so that's really important because one of the big images that god is telling his people all the time is to be upright yashar all the time yisrael is yashar el so god is upright um, the upright ones so to be twisted, crooked, or distorted um, is to take the path, right, the derech, and to be walking on it, but instead of doing so upright to um, uh, to do it in a crooked manner, a twisted manner, the, the path has been distorted. So some Romans 1 resonances there. Um, so that's the idea of iniquity or ava. So chata, you're just stepping off the path backs, and ava you are deliberately taking what God has asked us to do and you're twisting it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the, the second word is not so much just like mindlessly looking backwards and not realizing that you're about to run into something. It's, it's an intentional situation. Yeah. It's taking what is good and twisting it um, and using it for your own, potentially using it for your own ends. Right. Got it. That's the, that's the idea. Um, transgression is another English word we like to throw in. Um, and the Hebrew word behind that, if maybe your Bible's being consistent, is pesha'ah, which is still a word in modern Hebrew. And in modern Hebrew, it means crime. Um, but uh, the original idea is to break away from a covenant or agreement. So in modern Hebrew, it's like you're breaking the covenant of being a good citizen of society. Um, but in our path analogy, it's you said that you're going to walk the path and now you have broken that agreement and you've headed off on your own. Um, so yes, chata ava pesha. Um, sin, iniquity, transgression. Okay. So far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm kind of getting like a Lord of the Rings vibe on the third word where, <laughs> where you're kind of like, you have to, it's probably not a good analogy, but anyway. Let me think, which kind would that be? Are you thinking like uh, before Shelob with, with Gollum? No, just, and... just the the general idea of having to go that's in, in, a, in a way that's not mm -hmm. really the normal way. Mm -mm. Well, maybe Boromir committed a pesh'ah. He broke away from protecting Ferdinand in the ring and tried to take it for himself. There you go. There you go. I will chase down your Lord of the Rings metaphors to the end because it's worth it. Okay. We need we need a Lord of the Rings person on the podcast. This is great. Ooh, well, here I am. Hineni. <laughs> 
another good Bama callback. I love it. There we go. There we go. All right. Word number four is asham, and it is usually translated guilt. Um, and I love the picture behind this one. It's to be a slow or weary camel, which is great. So the idea is being neglectful of the path. So you're not stepping off of it. You're not trying to twist it into your own thing. You're not saying I quit. Um, you're just like slowing down so much that you like are just sitting down on the path and not going anymore. Um, like a sad camel. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with camels, of course, but I have been around horses. And sometimes you've got a horse who just doesn't want to go anywhere. And you're just pulling on the reins and it's just like holding you back. And is that the same idea? They can be stubborn. Um, yeah, I mean, the picture I think specifically is one that needs water, um, you know, that's just tuckered out. And I don't know if your horse was just hating on you a little bit there and being stubborn, but or if you had really ridden the horse to exhaustion. I don't know your life, friend. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think probably more of the stubborn idea. So this is just like a, I, I don't have what I need, so I can't go on. Right. I'm neglecting what I'm supposed to be doing. Or the picture is of that. It's not necessarily a kind of sin that happens when you don't have what you need. Um, but the picture is of a grumpy camel. Mm-hmm. Um, more of the idea of like, I, I'm not taking care of myself in the way that I should be. And therefore, I'm neglecting the path that I should be walking. Potentially. Yeah. The the idea is you're not going off the path. You're not deciding I'm not going to do this path anymore. You're just like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to stop running the race um, because I'm tired or because I'm stubborn or because I need water. Could be any of those things. Okay. Um, Yeah. But in Leviticus 4 or the scroll of Vayikra, um, there is a specific offering. So if you think about guilt this way, a guilt offering is an offering for a leader or a community that has gotten tired on the path and needs a way to like get started again. Um, and I think that's really lovely that they had a, a ritual in place to be able to say, okay, we've been tired, we've stopped running the race, but here we go. We're going to start again. Um, that is a future episode idea for sure. The various types of offerings. I want to ask about that at some yeah, point yeah, yeah. later. So yeah. I'm writing that down. Very good. Uh, word number five out of six. Um, so those are the main sin words, but I wanted to throw in two extracurriculars here um, because I think the distinction between them is important. So that was sin, iniquity, transgression, guilt, chata, ava, pesha, or asham. Um, and the word for evil is ra'a. Uh, it's the hard A twice. And the picture behind it that, of course, its first mention is in Genesis 2. But the picture behind it is noisy, shattering violence, um, which you can kind of hear. It's an onomatopoeia. It's ah, You know, uh, you can picture someone yelling it, which I won't do because this is an audio medium. Um, but that's what evil is. It's somebody coming through and shattering things. So if... Tov and Shalom and Tamim is related to wholeness and well-being. The opposite of that is shattering violence. Um, and the word for wickedness is Lesh'ah. So close, Ra'ah and Lesh'ah is to be a noisy, agitating person. So it's connected to this shattering violence, like a plate shattering, Ra'ah. Um, to be wicked is to be a noisy person, someone who comes into the room and likes to get people agitated. Um, 
So in contrast to a righteous person, a tzaddik. Yeah. So those are our six our six words around the idea of sin. And those last two don't go with the path metaphor, but I think it's interesting to distinguish, did I, you know, the difference between being evil, trying to break up wholeness and being, making a mistake, for instance, for sin, stepping off of the path. Well, that's a pretty good overview of sin. I like it. Yeah. Not the most theological breakdown, but a philological breakdown. Yes. That might be your your favorite word. Might be. Okay. Well, um, and I don't know if sin is connected to the archaeology of Joshua at all, but we do want to talk about that as well today. Yes. I mean, it's definitely, it might be adjacent, but uh, it's not topically connected in what I want to talk about. Um, But yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, archaeology and this specific issue, partly because listeners are still getting to know me as a member of the team. And although I am a woman, and although I do a lot of research in violence against women and women's issues, um, I'm not a one-dimensional person. I have many expertises. Um, And I also think it's very helpful because sometimes, especially around archaeology, we can get a a kind of a fear of academia. And what if when I look into this, it turns out that like none of it happened and my faith is going to be super challenged. Um, And so we kind of can shy away from it. But I've got good news. I'm not here to say that the the Bible is full of lies. So that's always nice, right? It's a good day. That's wonderful. And actually, I'm I'm kind of intrigued just by the idea of the archaeology of Joshua because I was under the impression that the oldest archaeology that we've discovered so far, not that there isn't more out there, but the oldest that we've discovered so far only takes us back to David. So I'm I'm intrigued by this idea of archaeology in the realm of Joshua. Oh, my friend, we have so many wonderful frontiers to explore. Yes, we have so much stuff in the land. So, so, so much. My favorite era is the Chalcolithic era, which comes before the Bronze Age eras. And we're going to be talking about the late Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Um, And early Iron Age is when King David shows up. Yes, Uh, King Dawid um, is referenced in the archaeological record specifically by name. And so maybe that's the fact that you're thinking of, of, Mm, you know, like Moshe's name isn't written on a rock somewhere. Right. I think that's more the idea that I was getting at. Right. So when I say of Joshua, of Yehoshua, I mean of the conquest um, more than the dude. We don't have his like skeleton set up somewhere that says extremely helpfully, here lies Yehoshua. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be nice. But uh, yeah, it is difficult to find things that old. And uh, yeah, we, we have a few, but not as many as we would like, probably. Probably. Um, yeah, maybe someday we'll find a crypt and I'll have everybody's skeletons lying in there just perfectly labeled this is Abraham <laughs> this that, that's the dream yeah that would be great but for now we have other things to to work with um which archaeology so great by the way if you get super overwhelmed or annoyed by um you know dealing with theological questions and wrestling in the text come over to archaeology for a while because it is so nice and refreshing at least for me when i was in grad school to deal with science and yes there's mysteries and puzzles that you have to try to solve with a good deal of creativity 
but you know, you're dealing with facts, um, and that can be refreshing. So welcome. Uh, I want to paint a picture of late bronze age, uh, the land. It would be controversial to call it Israel because the Israelite people weren't even there yet. Um, so I'll just stick with the land. Haaretz. Um, do you know anything about late bronze age land in the Levant, Brent? I know I'm going to put it in the presentation for today. <laughs> okay. I have a little timeline for, for people to reference. Wonderful. Uh, okay. So the Middle Bronze Age is characterized by these huge buildings and fortifications. Um, and the Late Bronze Age in the land look like um, a whole bunch of city-states. Um, just like in Greece, you probably know from classical education, you have Athens and Sparta, and they're run by these separate chieftains. It's the same deal in the land. Um, however, those different cities, which we would recognize most of the names of from the Bible, like Hatzor, um, they are occupied by Egyptian rule. Um, and we know that firstly, because they have the Armana letters, which are this big cache of tablets, They're mostly shattered, but they found in the south of Egypt. And um, the Armana letters are full of the different kings of the city states complaining to the pharaoh, the pharaoh saying, um, this head of this state is making it hard for me to trade and you should crack down on him and I'm extremely annoyed. It's that kind of thing. Um, and then we also know that there was a full military occupation at that time because um, we have in the various um, points in the tells. What's a tell, Brent Billings? Uh, that's the little like hill or mountain thing where there's a city was built and then it was destroyed and they kind of covered it up and then built another one on top of it. And they did that untold number of times usually. Uh, yes, not always destroyed. Sometimes they would just build on top. Okay. Uh, because you can look for very specifically destruction layers are specific mm. and it's not an untold amount of time because all the grad students like myself are made to uh, memorize all the layers and label them and know exactly which finds were in each layer and date them well it's not always the same number of times though right correct correct or is there kind of like a limit like yeah we can't really find anything that's more than seven or something no they they definitely vary like if you have a large settlement a large um, place people are living and they're there for a long period of time and they don't move because of drought or whatever it can be 15 to 20 um finding a single layer tell or a very small one is always very exciting for a number of reasons but um usually it's you know upwards of eight i would say hmm. okay a now told number of times. A now told number of times, yes. So um, we know from looking in these different layers, these strata in the tells, um, we have different cartouches, which is, you should know a cartouche all the way back from session one, I think, in the creation thing and the creation narrative that uh, Marty talks about, talk about cartouches, but a little insignias um, from the Egyptian empire you can find on perfume vessels. There's a bronze statue base of Ramses IV. Um, there's a sword 
with uh, one of the pharaoh's portraits on it. Um, so we can use those those items to date um, when the Egyptian empire was occupying. So you have this massive empire, which makes sense, right? It's kind of like uh, Israel or Palestine. There is kind of the South China Sea of the time of this huge empire up to the north and to the south. And they both want access coming through crossroads of the earth, right? Um, And so at that time, Egypt is fighting with the north um, and they're continuing and they're having this big battle, but Egypt is the one occupying. And then all of a sudden, the Egyptians pull out, just completely abandon the land. Why might they do that, Brent? I don't know. But for a second there, I thought you were going to tell me that the Israelites left Egypt proper to go to Egyptian occupied territory. <laughs> right? like, well, that's kind of ironic. Uh, Why would they leave, though? I don't know. They left because in the middle of their war with the North, um, a extremely adept at violence group of refugees from Greece, from Mycenae specifically, rolled into town um, and they rolled into Egypt and they rolled into what is now Turkey and they rolled into the land um, all at the same time. And they were so... uh, formidable that the north and the south uh egypt and i believe it's the hittites at that time uh, made an alliance and they said jk put our war on pause we need to defend our homeland from these what is they're called in the archaeological record the sea peoples bum 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 just a bunch of marauding refugees showed up on, on shore. There had been a drought in Greece um, and a famine. And so they thought, well, let's go, let's go marauding, you know, kind of Vikings of their time. Um, and they successfully messed with Egypt enough that Egypt said, okay, all done. Um, but as they're pulling out of um, Israel or Palestine, they destroyed all of these massive fortifications that we had in the Middle Bronze Age. Um, And we know that because when we're cutting down through the tells like a cake, um, you can see this ash layer that's all dated to the same time where they said, nope, actually we're gone. And they got rid of all of those fortifications because they didn't want either the sea peoples moving in and being like, hey, look, Look at all these really nice, huge, abandoned uh, fortresses. Awesome. They're ours now, and we get to keep all of our hard their hard work. Um, they said, nope. So they burned down everybody's fortifications um, and walls and, and all the rest. So meaning, dun-dun-dun, who does that clear the way for? For Joshua and the... The Israelites. Right. So around 1207. And by the way, I'm just thinking like as, and I, I'm not sure exactly, but I, I recently watched a documentary on World War II and, and just the idea of like, once we cross this bridge, we're going to blow up the bridge so that our enemies can't use it. Like this, this method of like destroying something that's useful so that somebody else can't use it. Uh, is is an idea that endures yeah basically to today thousands of years right we don't want people using our work thank you very much uh, a human instinct apparently so 
we have, and I just love this, um, in 1207 coming over the Arden, the, the Jordan River, exactly as it says in the text, all of a sudden, we have these semi-mysterious nomadic settlers who show up, and they all settle in these extremely um, distinctive elliptical sites, um, and their culture is distinguishable from the indigenous Canaanite people. Um, they store things in holes in the ground. They have these large vessels of pottery that are like the size of me um, rather than regular pottery sizes. Um, and those sites, which by the way, are multifamily abodes, almost like um, we'll, we talk about when we talk about insula, um, and they explode all over the Shefilah, which um, Bama listeners might remember is the period, the part of the land in between the coastline and the mountains of Yehuda. I do believe we talked about this in the episode around Joshua. So yeah, it makes sense. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. Um, and those slowly become settlements rather than nomadic setups over time. Um, and so what I love about that is so often our dichotomy when we're deconstructing or hearing new information is like, well, does it make sense that a bunch of, you know, scrappy people escaping Egypt as slaves um, would be able to walk into a brand new land and destroy everybody. Um, and some people might say, well, yes, they can because they have God. And yes, that's true. Um, but you also might say, mm, it's, it's, uh, um, maybe that's not you and that's fine. Uh, but so often the narrative is either you know, or it's just this whole made up thing um, that the Israelites wrote in order to feel good about themselves and the conquest didn't even happen. Um, when, in fact, the historical record can help us with that because it's not that they walked into these huge, massively fortified Middle Bronze Age cities ready to destroy everyone. Um, they walked into a land that had just been vacated by the military, um, whose city states only only would have like residual militias rather than, you know, full fledged armies because they had been regulated by the Egyptian occupation for so long within like 15 years of the um, Egyptians pulling out, they walk in and find this land, which God has perfectly uh, set up for them to be able to walk in and flourish in. Um, and I just think that's so exciting. That is absolutely wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what what was the uh, what was the name of the Greek group that left? Um, they're from the island of Mycenae, um, Mycenae, but they're called the Sea Peoples when the uh, people of that time are you know inscribing what happened. Like, These people just showed up in boats and great uh, great tie-in. Those people who invaded um, the land would become the palace. Uh, excuse me, they would not become the Palestinians. They become the Philistines. The word, which is why I misspoke, is pilash um, that we use for Philistines. It's pilash. And pilash means um, to roll in like a rock. 
So the Philistines are travelers who rolled in, which bringing it all together in Torah all the time, it's telling us to take care of the outsider, right? So maybe every time the text calls them the Philistines, the Pilashtim is reminding the people that these are the very people they're supposed to love and take care of and make sure that they're leaving produce out for mm. instead of going to war with them all the time. Oh, man. Right? That's so good. <laughs> right? Doesn't have any modern resonances at all either. No, of course not. Nope. Nope. Uh, so where do the Philistines come from? They're the sea people. Oh, they are the sea people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. 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 All right. Yep. Too many names for these sea people. <laughs> I know. Right? Yes. They're the okay. four, they're the forerunners of the, of the Philistines, but mm. we know that it's them because I sat in a whole semester long course, just arguing about pottery, red banded pottery. Yeah. And man, if you like puzzles, archaeologists are puzzle masters. It is incredible it's true like looking looking at the pieces of pottery that they like learn stuff from it's like <laughs> literally and like the like the measurements that you can take and figure out like from a one inch square piece of pottery and you can figure out how big the vessel was or what like it's that, it's that is wild mind-blowing to me that's the stuff for the doctoral students they're they're the ones who decide where they're gonna cut the trench and they're the person who tells gets funding and has to do all the analysis the master's degree students are the ones who get to read all of the drama from everybody writing their opinions and, and it is a messy world out there in archaeology there are shots fired all the time you can go online and watch like the conferences and the george clooney of israeli archaeology is like saying something and being snide and anyone who takes this position is a total imbecile and everyone behind him like throws their hands in the air it's great <laughs> so this was this was your life as a master's student uh yeah is reading everybody being angry at each other and being like there's no way his analysis is correct because he had a whole bunch of like christian uh summer camp kids excavate in two weeks and a good tell is excavated in five years at least you know it's that kind of stuff but in yeah. an official like scientific paper and you're just like wow all right <laughs> all right <laughs> Well, you know, you got to have your passion, I guess. You do. You do. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of curious, like what your I don't know if you want to share all this, but like, I'm curious about your class list. Like, are there any other interesting classes that I should know about that I can mine for future topics? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I took like four different classes. Um, so one per semester that I was allowed to um, in school. And those were sometimes extra classes, but those were under Dr. Doron Benami, um, who is wonderful human being who excavated and is still excavating the city of David in Jerusalem. Um, and then also Tel Khatur in the north. Um, so anything archaeology I'm, I'm in, but, uh, yeah, a lot of classes, um, Kabbalism, I took a class on a bunch of um, first century early roots of Christianity stuff. I took a class on the Psalms, Exodus. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a bounty of fun, a whole basket of. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I can't remember if we mentioned this in the last episode, but uh, uh, there's there's been a wealth of knowledge shared about Exodus in particular um, through Refuge Church. So 
check that That's out true. if you're interested in Exodus. Uh, I, I think I'm interested in the Psalms. I might have to throw that on the top of this. So, and I'm sure we'll hear from listeners if anyone has anything in particular that they want to learn about. If there are any Hebrew words or sets of words yeah. that they're interested in. So, yeah. But I think I think we're good for this episode. Are you good? I think. Uh... Maybe just one last thing about archaeology. If oh. I said anything that uh, upsets anyone, um, you can just know one of the wonderful things about archaeology is because it is a science, it's continually unfolding. So they used to say in Jerusalem specifically that it could not be uh, matching the uh, I think it's 2 Samuel 5 um, thing where it says that David took the city, King David took the city by sneaking through the waterways. And they're like, the waterways aren't built at this time. It's impossible. There's no way he could have fit through there. Um, but then, and that was the longstanding archaeological opinion. Um, but then they found a single olive pit underneath one of the fortifications which just goes to show wherever you're going at any point in time, please spit olive pits out the window um, to help the future archaeologists. Uh, <laughs> we'll appreciate it so much. Uh, they found it and it was later than the uh, fortification that was built on top of it or that they had faultily dated the fortification for. So ta-da, now it looks like David probably was able to sneak through the waterways thanks to that one olive pit. But So yeah. A single pit from an olive gave us yeah. a whole new understanding on everything. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so crazy. It's very fun. Yeah, so if anything comes out in the news, also archaeological stuff of Jerusalem specifically is always in the news and you're curious what the um, more scientific opinion is than whatever the news is saying. Um, can always ask about those things too. Here I am. And there's a variety of opinions and hypotheses and ideas. And always we take those and then we keep looking and find more clues that uh, lead us down the path that we should be going, apparently. Exactly. Okay. Well, that does it for this episode then. Wonderful. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty and tell him, how how awesome this episode was without him. Ah. You can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And then Elle, what is your preferred method of contact? I can't remember what we said um, last I'll have I have contact on my website um, listed. Oh yes, on your website. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds great. Get a hold of Elle on her website then. That's right. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>